0: It's Friday the 30th of September, and this is your CE Advanced Weekly Briefing. Coming up, we've got Jenny McEwan from our Global Economic Service talking about our new global recession forecast, and we've got our markets team talking about Asian FX and what's been happening there. But now I've got Neil Shearing Group, Chief Economist, on the line. Neil, you're in Changi Airport. You spent the week in Singapore talking to clients. What's, what have you been talking about? What, what's on their minds?
1: Well, normally when you come to Singapore and we talk to clients in Asia, all the conversations are framed about what's happening in China. This time I've flown 10,000 miles to Singapore to talk about what's happened, been happening in the UK and partly exactly what did cause, did trigger the big moves in the pound and the yields and the response of the Bank of England that we saw earlier this week, but also the implications for other countries and whether the UK might be the first of several dominoes to fall.
0: And what are the big takeaways here for other countries? This crisis is is now a week old. It feels like several months already. We've had the statement. We've had the market reaction, the violent market reaction. We've had the, the Bank of England intervention. As of now, Friday morning in London, it looks like sterling has come back. Guilt yields have recovered somewhat. So you could argue that the dust might be settling a little bit at this point. What are the lessons here for, for other countries?
1: Well, I think the, the risk of direct contagion from what's happening in the UK to other bond markets and currency markets, I think is limited. This is a UK crisis, self-inflicted by the, by the UK government. It was about not necessarily the scale of the fiscal giveaways and tax cuts that were announced last week in the House of Commons by Chancellor Kwasi Kwarteng. The more of the manner it was done and the way that it was communicated to markets and the fact that rather than trying to dampen things down, cool things down over the, the following weekend, he took to the airwaves and said, actually, there's more there's more tax cuts to come. You've not seen anything yet. And that just set in train series of events where basically the market started to question the UK's government's um, commitment to fiscal um, sustainability. And so I think that the real lesson for other countries is not so much about direct contagion from the UK, but more that for the last 15 years, at least since the uh, global financial crisis, there have not been, for the most part, hard constraints on, on government finances and the fiscal policy in an era where monetary policy has been extremely loose, but government borrowing costs have been extremely low. Actually, the pressure has been largely to, to maintain supportive fiscal policy. Obviously, that environment has now changed everywhere, including in the UK. The return of inflation and the shift to higher interest rates means that the constraints on fiscal policy are much more binding. The margin for error when it comes to fiscal policy is much more limited. Governments have less room for fiscal manoeuvre and they can quickly find themselves in trouble if they lose credibility in the market. It's, and that's what the UK, the UK government find this week. And I think if, you, if you're gonna look for lessons elsewhere, you would say, well, populist governments in Europe, for example, be careful about how you draw up your fiscal plans, but also communicate those to the market.
0: What has this week done to, to sign light on the role of central banks in this new era? Well, I think it's a reminder that there are really two roles that central banks perform.
1: One is as a managing demand, the balance of demand and supply in economies, and therefore, by virtue of that, containing inflation pressures. But the second is the lender of last resort in the economy, and therefore, the guardian of financial stability. And it's that part that I think we saw with the, the purchase. That's what the Bank of England was getting, getting at with the, by restarting bond purchases. This wasn't an attempt to loosen monetary conditions was an attempt to take some of the strains out of the bond market in the context of extreme pressure mounting on pension funds in the UK. So, yeah, much more about the lender of last resort function and, frankly, a reminder that for all the comparisons drawn between the UK and emerging economies, despite the UK's evident problems, the UK is not an emerging economy, sterling is not an emerging market, EM currency, and the Bank of England can stand behind the bond market and ease some of those pressures. So, so yeah, I think it's possible that we're even, it's possible we is possible to find the ECB, for example, having to do similar measures, undertake similar measures as it starts to tighten policy, raise the curve, shorten the curve, but it has to control the long end with asset purchases.
0: There's also okay, but so we had the Bank of England intervening, stepping in to calm the market. There did seem to be this 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 real risk of of some kind of dislocation in the pension industry. Does it feel like this week? has crystallized a sense that something could go wrong as as central bank's tighten policy. I know that the UK issue is, is very UK centric. It's to do with this new government's fiscal spending plans. But it does seem to be, given all the market ru- ructions, it does seem to have, have raised awareness within, in markets of, of potential dislocations as you move from an environment of extremely loose monetary policy towards a much more restrictive stance. Yeah, I think that's right. I think the the
1: landscape, and we've said this several times, haven't we? Read the past that the landscape has become much more difficult for policy makers to navigate. That's true. Central banks and trying to damp down on on inflation, but also governments with respect to fiscal policy in the context of higher borrowing costs and rising yields. So I think it does. It underlines the point that the path ahead is increasingly treacherous, treacherous rather, and that the room for manoeuvre on fiscal policy is limited now the risks of mistakes, unintended or or otherwise, is much higher.
0: So we talk about the need for governments to to be mindful of bond markets and and the reaction of markets to their fiscal intentions. Does that risk then a drive towards austerity, a drive towards cuts to try to appease the bond market, the kind of thing that, that George Osborne tried in the wake of the global financial crisis to huge economic cost to the UK? I think that the
1: issue is that the context is fundamentally different. The economic backdrop is fundamentally different. The issue in 2010 was that we had by no means recovered from the effects of the global financial crisis. Economies were still operating a long way below potential, and there was substantial slack in labor markets. The issue was a deficit of demand. Uh, whereas today, if you fast forward, actually economies were at full employment, there were supply constraints in labor markets, wage growth was strong, there was a as we've discussed in the past, there's a question about the extent to which there is a bit of permanent reduction in supply as a result of the pandemic, or some of the supply constraints just simply reflect ongoing disruption caused by the pandemic. It takes some time to come back. But anyway, point being that there's less capacity in economies now. So austerity, fiscal tightening, much less damaging. In fact, it's necessary if you've got monetary policies trying to dampen down on demand. It's better to have fiscal policy trying to do the same thing, they work together rather than oppose one another. That's not to say there's not room for fiscal support for households in the the wake of an energy crisis in Europe and in the UK. You would want, over and above this, you would want fiscal policy to be working with monetary policy together, And, and obviously in the UK it's not.
0: So Neil, you've just been in Singapore talking to clients about what's happening near term, what's happening in the UK, our medium term view on on central bank tightening, recession risk, et cetera, et cetera. But you're also there talking to them about Spotlight, which is our annual research project, which takes a step back and looks at some of the the big tectonic themes in global economies and markets. We're publishing on Thursday. Can you give a brief take on what clients can expect? As you say,
1: Spotlight is something we do once a year. It's an opportunity to step back from the day-to-day ebb and flow of what's happening in markets. And there's been a lot of that recently. But think of, really think about some of the bigger drivers that will shape the global economy um, over the, the coming years and decades. And this year, we're tackling the subject of global fracturing. So this is really the idea that the global economy is splintering into two blocks, one that's aligned with the U.S., one that's aligned with China and underpinning this is the idea that geopolitics is back um, as a driver of economic policy decisions. Now that will have huge ramifications that will have implications for supply chains and the orientation of production and the location of production. It will have implications for energy security, food security. It will have implications for financial flows, and it will have implications for technology transfer, too. And we get into all of that in the document and the report, which is going to be published, as you say, this coming Thursday. And then we're holding events, virtual, virtual events the following week to, to walk clients through it.
0: That was Neil Shearing at the airport in Singapore. All our key coverage of the UK mini-budget and its fallout are on a dedicated page on our website. Our UK team is even less optimistic about the economic outlook now as a result of the spending plans. It's a view that feeds our increasingly gloomy global forecast. I spoke with Jennifer McCune, who leads our global economic service, about our latest revision, which now sees the global economy falling into recession. Now, there's some debate about what a recession actually is, so I started by asking Jenny how we're defining it.
2: That's a really good question. I guess the standard definition that everyone will be aware of is two consecutive falls in quarterly GDP. But of course, that doesn't normally apply to the world as a whole because emerging markets are growing so so strongly ordinarily. And actually, even for advanced economies, most people now think that that's too simplistic a definition. The NBER's business cycle dating committee in the US, for example, uses a whole range of economic indicators to date recessions there. So the IMF has proposed doing something similar for the world where we define recessions based on GDP per capita and a broad range of other economic indicators. So there's also a weakening of trade, of capital flows, of employment. And we think that a lot of those criteria are going to be met essentially by our forecasts as we see them. A lot of this won't be observable until a long time after the event. We won't have the data to say definitively whether this was a global recession. But in short, with global GDP falling in most advanced economies, GDP stagnating in in China, world trade down, various asset prices falling. It's certainly going to feel like a recession and we may as well call a spade a spade.
0: And it's important to stress that this is coming in advance of your Q4 global economic outlook. And I know that you and the global economics team are working with all the regional and country teams to review the forecasts for that report, which should be coming in the second half of October. You're you're clear that the global economy is now facing recession. I think your report talks about growth of below the 2.5% threshold, perhaps even below 2%. Back in July, when you were doing the Q3 global economic outlook, you talked about recession threat spreading. What's changed? What, what's tipped you into actually now forecasting that recession?
2: Well, it, it's largely about monetary policy, Well, the persistence of inflation partly, but moreover, the monetary policy response that we've seen to it, which has been more dramatic and we think will continue to be more dramatic than we'd previously envisaged and indeed that most most people had. We're now expecting the most aggressive tightening since Paul Volcker chaired the Fed. And it's hard to imagine, really, that the world can can withstand that kind of policy tightening.
0: So is this a, a general downgrade of expectations? I know you talk about higher expectations for, for interest rates, but do we see some economies performing significantly worse than we did back in July and, and that's what's tipped it? Or is it just the wave of monetary tightening that we're looking at?
2: Yeah, I, I think it's more the wave really. It's a pretty broad-based downgrade. It's, it's unlikely now that the US or Canada can avoid recessions as we'd hoped that they would the last time we produced A quarterly outlook, and the economies to perform worse still will be in Europe, where gas prices are still the major issue and the drag on real incomes. But China looks weak too, albeit for different reasons. Activity is set to remain very soft over the next few months, with the property downturn deepening, exports softening. We're going to continue to get COVID-related disruptions, given it's zero COVID policy. We don't expect the Chinese economy to grow at all this year. And and we expect only a a very modest recovery next year. So that's a really stark contrast with what we used to for China. The 10-year average growth rate is 7%. So it's not just an advanced economy phenomenon. It it very much does feel like a, a global downturn
0: and i suppose there are recessions and and there are recessions if we look at the historical record how how do you think this one is going to compare to to previous downturns
2: well i don't think but like, i hope it's not going to compare to to the pandemic probably not to the financial crisis actually the pandemics have just completely changed the way we think about about recessions but hopefully those kinds of very, very sharp falls in GDP that we saw a, a, a once-in-a-lifetime event. Compared to the financial crisis, debts have come down in in the private sector. They're generally at longer maturities, so the effects of policy tightening hopefully won't be quite as bad as, as they were then. But we are expecting falls in GDP across advanced economies. In the Eurozone's case, on the the basis of, uh, as as you've rightly pointed out, our forecasts are still kind of penciled in at at the moment and subject to change. But we're we're expecting that GDP will fail to expand for four quarters. The peak to trough fall will be a bit more than 1%. Historically, that's kind of an average recession, if you can call it that. But I think the risks are very much to the downside.
0: So I guess Volcker-style tightening, but perhaps not Volcker- style downturn to follow
2: we're hoping the inflation problem this time isn't as entrenched so it won't won't require such a huge tightening as as we (laughs) saw back then although headline rates are really shocking there's lots of temporary factors that that are still pushing them up most notably energy prices, underlying inflation, wage growth are nowhere near as high as they were back then, thanks to various structural factors. So we're hoping that we we won't need quite such an aggressive policy tightening to to quash it.
0: It's interesting, though, because the financial commentary seems to be swinging quite quickly from central banks have been too slow to respond to the inflation threat to central banks now could over-tighten and cause Greater damage to to economies than than they intend.
2: Yes, I mean absolutely, it's a risk. There's so much uncertainty. At, at the moment about just where where underlying inflation is going to drop out. And central banks, they feel that they're a bit behind the curve. They're having to respond very, very quickly now and front load interest rate hikes. There are some concerns about credibility crystallised most notably recently in, in the UK. So central banks are going to feel the need to really get on top of this. And it's possible that they go too far. Maybe as headline inflation starts to come down as we hope it will next year it will become clear that underlying I- inflation is not a major problem and that demand will weaken very dramatically and we could see much, much deeper recessions that's that's clearly where the, the risk is skewed
0: okay to sum up you're saying that we are looking at a recession but perhaps not as 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 deeper downturn as has been associated with previous episodes of aggressive tightening what about upside risks? There's also talk of the Fed pivoting. I know that we have in our forecast that they will be cutting rates by the end of, of next year. Is there a chance that things will turn out better than, than we're currently expecting?
2: Yeah, there's a chance of that. I think really it all hinges on in inflation. We're already seeing some evidence that in inflation is coming down in the US in particular. We've seen those acute shortages that were boosting price pressures in recent months coming off and uh, various indicators that suggest that core inflation will start to come down alongside the headline rate, which is already falling. So, So we're pretty hopeful that that will happen, but it could happen a lot quicker than our forecasts imply. And that might mean that the Fed pivots relatively quickly. And also the other major central banks do. I think the pivot that we have in for the Fed is already relatively soon compared to the market. But it may be that the ECB, the likes of the Bank of England turn more quickly too. And that would obviously be a very good thing for the world if we had inflation coming down of its own accord. And that meant that this aggressive policy tightening that we we're anticipating either doesn't need to come through in full or, or is reversed relatively quickly.
0: That was Jenny McCune from our global economics service. A key side effect of a hawkish Fed and a darkening economic outlook is a strong dollar. It hit a 20-year high last week, and our EM team will be briefing clients this Thursday about what dollar strength means in terms of macro risk. It is certainly prompting more interventions from central banks to counter its effects, and our markets team held a session last Tuesday on the currency impact. In this extract, you'll hear Jonas Goldstein being asked by Tom Matthews about the Bank of Japan and the People's Bank of China, and what they're doing to tackle the rising dollar. It starts with Jonas talking about the Bank of Japan's recent intervention to support the yen and whether that will actually work. I
3: think currency intervention. There's a lot of debate on this. Um, you know, the, the experience ranges from a lot of success. Uh, The Plaza Accord, I suppose, is the the primary example of that. But China or India, for example, they manage their currencies. A lot of Asian economies do with a reasonable degree of success, depending on how you define success. But it certainly can be done. And then, of course, you've got the other end end of the spectrum, the sort of disasters that you see in in places like Turkey or Argentina. So there's a wide range of outcomes. The Japanese have a history of, of doing currency intervention. The last time they tried to support the yen back in 98, you know, the didn't really work out. The, the yen kept weakening. This time around, yen does look really weak. So they've got that going in their favour. They also have a really large stock of FX reserves, the largest anywhere apart from from China, more than a trillion dollars. So they they've got enough ammunition to at least make a difference. Now I don't think it's going to be enough to turn the yen around and and you know send it soaring anytime soon. But it's probably enough to at least hold the line for a while. Essentially, they're trying to buy time. And you know we talked about the Fed earlier. When are they going to turn around? You know, I think the Japanese are betting that it's going to happen sooner rather than later in the next few months. And in the meantime, if they can keep the yen from falling, they'll be happy with that, assuming the cost doesn't, doesn't get too too high. So we'll see how that goes. Obviously, there's a huge amount of volatility in, in, in the yen exchange rate, or exchange rates more broadly right now. But they've got at least a chance of success with that, that approach, is my view. So, in summary, I suppose our forecast is implicitly that they'll probably be successful in holding it up
1: for a little while until we really see a Fed pivot that really takes the pressure off the year.
3: Yeah, I mean, uh, for, for for what it's worth, our, our our forecast for the yen, we we had argued that it was going to, to strengthen to one thirty against the dollar by the end of this year. That was based on uh, on treasury yields falling back in that period. Now that doesn't look as likely with the the Fed and Powell doubling down on their hawkish approach. So, I think the best that the, the BOJ can hope for is to keep the yen at at one forty five by you know over the next few months, and then. See it strengthen, you know, once the once the Fed turns around and and interest rates start to ease back globally. Okay. Well, staying in the region, the other, of course, interesting development last week was seeing why the Chinese from
1: NIMBY has fallen through the sort of so-called key psychological level of about seven quite recently, and it's now approaching a level of about seven point two. That would be its the lowest it's been, essentially under what what you might think of the current regime. I mean, We've sort of argued that that's a line in the
3: sand. Is that still the case? Do we think
1: that you know if it weakens much further, the authorities will really step up the intervention, or might they lose?
3: This thing is with the line in the sand that you can always draw more lines, right? Seven was the line in the sand, and then then it became seven point two. But I, I think you know you're right. This is a, a pretty important level. The authorities appear to have you know they've stepped up their efforts to to keep it below there, both in terms of you know it looks like they've been intervening. Um, uh, but also in terms of raising, you know, reserve requirements, and they have a they have a whole host of levers that they can pull in order to, to try to to, to keep the currency under control. So far, it keeps sliding. If it goes through, you know, 7.2, well, it, it's t- since it's such a managed exchange rate, it, it, it's not like it's just going to take off because they are going to keep throwing everything they have at it, but. You know, I think if if it goes through 7.2, we'll have to reassess our view, which is you know has been that they're going to keep it from you know that the, the Rumi would weaken towards a sort of 7 7.2 level, that that's what they would be comfortable with. But anything more than that, they'd start worrying about capital flight and, and a sort of downward spiral taking hold. So you know, if if it does go through that and you see a sort of discontinuous move, it, you know, as the odds of that happening that clearly have gone up. And if it were to happen, I think we'd have to reassess, you know, a forecast that you'd also have to bear in mind that would be a pretty, potentially pretty seismic event for, for markets more broadly, that kind of level going and, and, you know, remember, weakness usually is associated with, you know, if you think back to 2016, it, it was a very good environment for for other currencies in the region or for risky assets more broadly, because you, you get these worries about, you know, China going into, hard landing, you know, their economies on the ropes already. So I think that that's a key risk to watch.
0: That's it for this episode. Remember, you can find all the analysis and forecasts referenced within your CE Advanced Access. If you're not currently guessing Advanced Access and want to learn more, get in touch with your account manager or drop a line to sales at capitaleconomics.com.